Hi, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Mayo Challenge podcast, brought to you by the University of Twente's Robotics Center, and it's based right here in the Netherlands. Steven, I can't believe it's the final episode already. I know. Hi, everybody. Yes, it, time flies when you're having fun. And in my case, that's having interesting conversations with experts in the field of robotics and AI. Well, we hope you, listening to this series, enjoy these conversations as well. My name is Anique van Damme, and I host this series together with Steven van Roon. You had the Robotics Center at the University of Twente, Steven. Why is this a special week? Well, this week is NeurIPS. And in the academic world, there are many conferences held to exchange the latest developments. And NeurIPS, being held in the US and New Orleans this year, is all about artificial intelligence and machine learning in neural information processing systems. Well, that certainly relates to the Mayo Suite, where we are building a library of digital human twins to enhance future healthcare. And in this episode, we find out who the winners will be of the Mayo Challenge. We're even going to interview one of those winning teams. Yes, and I can't wait for that and to find out how they tackled this year's challenges. So, let's go. Let's do this. In just a few minutes, we know who the winners are from the Mayo Challenge 2023. But before the announcements, let's take a step back. Why is this competition organized in the first place? We discussed this with one of the founders of the Mayo Suite and Mayo Challenge, Professor in Neuromechanical Engineering, Massimo Sartori. Well, the Mayo Challenge has the ability of introducing AI and digital twins into current rehabilitations. Uh, the dream is to make use of these tools to come up with new personalized rehabilitation treatments uh, so that we can create digital copies of a patient and uh, train these patients in simulations, find out what is the optimal and most personalized rehabilitation treatment that we can possibly have for the patient. And hopefully this will um, enable um, deploying to the real person a treatment that is uh, really tailored to the patient's needs. It will lead to a faster recovery, uh, but also to a greater um, restorations of, of, of movement capacity. That's a tangible application demonstrating how Mayo Challenge can improve future healthcare. And that application is clearly in line with Sartori's expertise, as he works on the intersection between movement neurophysiology, biomechanics and human physical interaction with wearable assistive technologies. Steven and I ask him about the procedure of determining the winning team of the two tracks in the challenge, the manipulation and the locomotion track. So, well, it's a NeurIPS uh, right now, right? Yes. So, um... When it comes to the Mayo Challenge, um, when do you know in the, in the process who the winner will be? Well, the winners are evaluated on uh, using an automated software. And we typically know the final results two to three weeks before uh, the actual announcement. Did you say an automatic, automatic software? Yes, exactly. So um, as part of the Mayo Challenge, participants are allowed to submit at most five model predictions a day. These model predictions are evaluated using an online automated platform, which automatically scores the, the answers based on some metrics. 
Uh, one of these metrics is, for example, the accuracy of executing a specific task. Uh, but we also look at other metrics such as the metabolic energy used to carry out a specific movement. So we want to have solutions that are optimal or efficient from an energetic point of view. And that's because it is believed that uh, this is one of our strategies for engaging our muscles and carrying out any type of actions. We are believed to perform movements in an optimal way from a metabolic point of view. Yeah. So they use hard matrices to make sure that there can be no bias in saying locations or institutions or anything. When recording this interview, the winners are not yet officially announced. But the automated software Massimo is telling about is transparent. All participants can have a look at the leadership board. We hook up with a member from the current highest ranked policy team in the manipulation track. Yeah, so I'm Alberto Chiappa. I am a PhD student at EPFL in Lausanne in the laboratory of Professor Alexander Matis. And our group is a research unit in computational neuroscience and artificial intelligence. And in particular, my research topic is deep reinforcement learning for motor control. When, um, I mean, you've submitted your policy and I, I, is it fingers crossed right now or... How excited are you? Fingers How crossed. nervous yeah. are you? No, oh, no, I'm uh, very confident. Yeah, <laughs> should be should be good. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, we were first in the public leaderboard, so it should be should be good also this year. What made you join the challenge in the first place? I came to know about this uh, this uh, this challenge uh, through my my supervisor Alexander, who t told me, yeah, well, as you're uh, working on adaptive motor control, the, there seems to be this uh, this cool new library that is called the uh, Mayo Suite. Um, Which, uh, try, uh, which simulates in, uh, in Mujoko uh, high-dimensional uh, and uh, biologically realistic uh, uh, body parts. And uh, they designed uh, uh, environments in which these body parts have to interact with, uh, with objects. So it's, uh, it seems like a nice control pro a difficult control problem and a nice fit to, to your research. So why don't you dedicate uh, a couple of months to, uh, to try to compete and, uh, and, uh, and win it? So we put together an, a nice team with uh, another uh, another laboratory uh, of, of the University of Geneva, with uh, who are our uh, collaborators sometimes uh, of the Professor Alexander Pouget, and uh, so in three three PhD students uh, we we competed in this uh, in this challenge and uh, tried to to win it. And that goal didn't come out of nowhere. Last year, his team won the manipulation track, the challenge with the kiwis. Remember, I mean bowling balls, of course. In it to win it is definitely an expression that shows Chiapas' determination. We tried initially to compete in the in the locomotion uh, uh, track, but uh, we quickly saw that there was uh, another team that uh, that was so much much stronger than us that we had to to go back to the to the object manipulation track where we could uh, instead uh, rank uh, rank first. But uh, in the in the other one, uh, well, yeah, the the. the The gap was, uh, was quite big. We cannot improvise uh, uh, locomotion researchers uh, against the labs that have been working on it for, uh, I don't know, last five years or so. I also already saw a very confident smile uh, a few minutes ago. What if you are the big winners again? What would be your first reaction? The smile would get even bigger, <laughs> I think. Yeah, very good. It would be, would be another, uh, another good accomplishment. How would you celebrate it together? How do you do that over there? I hope a nice, uh, nice dinner uh, here in uh, New Orleans. I'm uh, now at, uh, at this conference with full of other uh, 
uh, it's full of other researchers that uh, <laughs> that are also in uh, reinforcement learning. Yeah, maybe nice, uh, nice dinner over it. While Alberto is at the NeurIPS conference in the US, we cross the puddle back to the Netherlands, where we hear drum rolls emerge. The moment we've all been waiting for. So, Mossimo, the moment is, is there, right? It is. It is. So, uh, don't keep us uh, waiting any longer. We really want to find out who are the winning teams from this year's Mayo Challenge. Right. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the 2023 uh, winner of the manipulation track is Team Latice, which is based at EPFL in Switzerland and is composed by Alberto Chiappa, Alessandro Marin Vargas and Alexander Matis. That uh, sounds familiar. Yes, yes, they actually won the 2022 Mayo Challenge competition as well. Yes, they, they were the same team. Uh, it's clearly an interesting and special team and it would be very nice to have the chance to talk to them and, and find out what's so special about their, their approach. Well, that would be very nice indeed. In a minute, I'll ask them about how they cracked the code. But we've got another winner announcement to make. I'm talking about the winning team of the second track. There is also the locomotion track and the 2023 winner of the locomotion track, ladies and gentlemen, this year is Team GateNet, which is based in South Korea, Seoul National University and is composed by Yungham Park and Yungdam Won. Congratulations. Congratulations as well. Sartori emphasizes the automation in the process of coming to the final winners. And he hopes they share his vision from an open source platform too. All partners contributing to the project do so, varying from universities and corporates like Meta AI and Google's DeepMind. I think it would be fantastic if the winning teams of these years um, at the locomotion track and the, and the manipulation track, they would eventually release their solutions, they would make their methodology openly available to, to everyone. This was actually the overarching goal of the challenge, to engage collectively in a difficult task, in a difficult competition, so then eventually we could find a solution and make it available to the community and accelerate progress in this field collectively. Kiappa, a 30-year-old PhD student in computational neuroscience and AI, can't wait to talk to the winning Korean team and find out how they did it. He initially wanted to go for the win in the locomotion track. And I, I'm uh, looking forward to it. I really want to, want to know what, uh, what is this, uh, this secret uh, ingredients that they have that uh, <laughs> marked such a gap between uh, us and them. But yeah, finally we tried. To, maybe we were a bit naive. We tried to to just apply the same uh, the same pipeline that, that uh, worked well with the object manipulation, and uh, that uh, this year proved again uh, very successful uh, in in this. But uh, um, yeah, the translation to to locomotion was not uh, was not so straightforward. Well, it is open source. So basically, at the end of this competition, you know what they're. Uh, what their tricks and their capabilities are, yeah. I guess. Yeah, they should. I think they will uh, open source it. I mean, we did with uh, our solution both last year and, uh, and this year. So yeah. I, I wonder if somebody this year uh, also took uh, some inspiration from our, our solution. You know what they say, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go further, go together. 
I love this shared knowledge approach and that can really accelerate innovation. We turned the talk towards what you are dying to know. How did they do it? Steven van Roon and I asked Alberto Chiappa about the team's secrets. To share their strategy, Chiappa uses the example of bounding balls from last year's challenge, what became their baseline for 2023. So we, we used a, a combination of, uh, of two learning frameworks that are uh, reinforcement learning and uh, curriculum learning. So with, uh, with reinforcement learning, as you, you were already introduced to it, but uh, reinforcement learning basically seeks to uh, learn a function that connects the state of the system that is observed by, by the agent uh, with uh, an action that is then applied to to the environment, and uh, it, it uh, every time that it uh, um, outputs one uh, one control uh, action, it receives uh, a measure of how good that action was in the form of uh, a reward. So this uh, uh, cycle between uh, observing the, this, the environment, uh, choosing an action, and receiving a, a reward can be framed so that uh, the the model will choose those actions that in the long term. Uh, produce the maximum amount uh, amount of reward. And the main challenge of reinforcement learning that limits, I mean, it, seems, it would seem like this is such a general uh, learning framework that it can, it can be applied to uh, almost everything that involves the uh, interaction with, uh, with the world and uh, would, should just be able to, to learn uh, everything. But uh, that's not really the case because there's a, a big uh, um, limitation to it, which is uh, uh, exploration, like uh, uh, to, to be able to learn something, it has to, to first uh, discover it. So uh, I will maybe make you an example. Let's say that you have uh, um, uh, a sequence of rooms uh, in which there are uh, two, two doors, uh, and you can choose the door uh, on the left and the door on, uh, on the right. And you will uh, only get uh, the reward if you choose uh, for uh, 10 times in a row the correct, uh, the correct uh, door. I mean, it will. It is very, very unlikely that you will even ever observe uh, this uh, this reward, and so the the learning will uh, will never happen. So for this uh, this reason, uh, we didn't just uh, train uh, uh, with reinforcement learning on uh, on the task uh, objective, but we introduced uh, a curriculum uh, of uh, of tasks. So we progressively uh, moved from uh, an easy task that could be realistically learned uh, just with the reinforcement learning. And then we, we took the, the agent that was uh, trained on the simple task and we transferred it to a slightly more complicated one. And then uh, to a further slightly more complicated one till uh, it, we smoothly reached the, the final task that we had to solve, which was to, to be able to rotate this, uh, these uh, two poles. In this way, you, we just guide the, uh, the agent towards the... Uh, the full uh, the full task in in a way that it doesn't have to discover the connection from a completely random behavior till the perfect behavior on its own. You smoothly uh, guide it uh, through it. How long did it took you? Yeah, so it uh, we worked on the project around two months, but uh, we the the yeah the, the, the thing is that the, we we had to to do a lot of. Uh, intermediate uh, failed attempts before uh, understanding that uh, this was the, the way to go. So if you, if we had to just repeat uh, uh, the only useful uh, steps of our, uh, of our approach, maybe it would take two, three weeks. Chiappa is probably having a nice dinner in New Orleans, but we all know before you can celebrate, a lot of difficulties were encountered. It took determination and a little out of the box thinking to come up with this curriculum technique. Kiappa says he had never seen anything like that before. Yeah, there was a moment, like at the end of, uh, of phase uh, phase one, where uh, especially one of my colleagues uh, really promoted this uh, 
this uh, um, curriculum technique and said, I think this is the way to go. And uh, it, in just a few days, it worked uh, like like a charm. It, uh, it was, uh, uh, we, we managed to, to, to fully, fully solve uh, um, the first, uh, first phase of the, of the task. Then we, we tried uh, to, to apply it to the second phase. That was a bit more difficult because it had uh, more decision-making involved. And that was, uh, was, uh, did not directly work uh, out of the box. It, uh, we had to, to, to grind a little bit to, to make it work. And uh, it was less uh, elegant, I would say. We, it was a lot more of, of trial, uh, trial and error, but uh, still, uh, still worked uh, uh, well, uh, well in the end. In what way did you benefit from uh, winning the previous uh, challenge? There are some some uh, uh, very simple technical uh, advantages in the fact that I had already all the, the training uh, uh, code and the submission code already ready. So I just uh, I could just focus on the fun part, which is to design what uh, what task the my my model. Uh, uh, would have uh, had to, to to train to be trained on. While last year there was a bit of uh, engineering also involved, uh, as I had to to get familiar with the with the library and uh, with the code to to make uh, to to train my my agents. Yeah. So this year, uh, yeah, I had a very quick uh, start. Uh, like I had to, I could easily skip the first uh, few weeks uh, of work and uh, just focus on uh, on uh, training my my agents. So with every competition, there's a winner. And there is a reward, right? A prize. If I check the MyoSuite website, I see there is a reward from $20,000 plus. I asked the third Mayo Challenge founder about that monetary prize. It is Vikash Kumar. And you've heard this AI expert in the previous episodes. But he tells me that Alberto Chiappa is not getting a number with five zeros on his bank account. That also wasn't the goal of this amount, Kumar says. So essentially, the prize money is a holistic budget. So we are an independent organization that is trying to organize and bring these communities together, right? And there are different layers of building these communities together. We actually see the current research being focused in small clusters and small groups. And if we really want the full force of academic research or smart, talented individual behind this grand challenge, then we need to break certain boundaries. We need to also train the next generation to be able to do do so in the years to come. So part of our actual uh, funding and these prizes are more intended and meant for those that we want to facilitate individuals that otherwise would not be able to have access to these facilities. So people with limited access to compute, we help them throughout the challenge by giving them access to compute. We use these resources to create more um, tutorials that will help people that are just starting up. We have exclusive representation for people coming from a less represented group. We have students, even last year, we have high school students participating that we're just able to use our examples to build forward. Even this year, we have master's students doing really, really well. So this, these efforts are exactly what where, we've, where I personally think some of these monetary help really goes long way. So if others are listening and hearing, let's come together for this mission of training the future generation, enabling this technology further 
and making sure different people have access to it. Vikash wants people to feel empowered and knowledgeable to contribute. The adjunct professor at the Carnegie Mellon Robotics Institute himself isn't driven by a monetary prize either. The prize, the, the big prize for me is that uncovering something that no one else has done so far. There is no feeling that can beat this. That your method, your idea is the top of the line today of what a human understanding is. There is nothing that can beat this feeling, okay? If anyone is giving a different answer or anyone is competing for a different reason, I want you to reconsider this. Just think about a feeling that your method is the best understanding of physiological movement that exists today. So, we can now add two models to the Mayo Suite library. Upper body with hand, elbow and shoulder, and lower body with a lower limb. But in the end, extending the platform is not the goal on itself. It is what we do with these models that can enhance our lives. Steven and I talked to Massimo Sartori about simulations and how robotics can help amputees rehabilitate faster in the next years. But let's zoom out a bit more on future applications of these technologies. What will he see happening the day after tomorrow? In my view, um, robotic technologies will become more and more wearable. They will become lighter, they will become softer and smaller. And in the future, these technologies will become what I call chronic devices. Our shoes are, or our glasses, they are chronic devices. We wear them uh, for the whole day. And our glasses, they assist our, our visions, our shoes, they protect and they assist the way that we move. In the future, we will have um, a small and flexible and lightweight robots that can basically support our movements on a 24-7 uh, basis. They will act as second skins. So these robots, they will be able to guess what happens in, in our body if we are likely to get injured, if we are likely to get fatigued, uh, if we are likely to fall. And they will uh, either protect um, our joints from an injury or they will augment our reflexes so that we cannot fall. So it's like a bodysuit? I'm thinking more of, uh, well, it, it, it depends. There are different time stages. Uh, in the midterm, this will be like indeed a bodysuit. Um, it could be like uh, some, some, some sort of flexible leggings with uh, small actuators. Nowadays, uh, you can use the so-called Bowden cables. They are cables uh, that are connected to small motors, and these motors, they pull on, this, on these cables, and these cables, they are attached to specific pivot points on your feet and on your knees, and so they can generate assistive tension, so they can help a specific motion. Um, and we can imagine the same idea for, for the upper limb. We also have inflatable actuators that, are, um, that can be, for example, embedded into clothing. So certain parts uh, of your shirt, of your trousers, they will have micro inflatable structures that can also support uh, the way that you move. Um, 
could it be like like then you put on uh, let's say you're 85 years old and you go out to the grocery uh, store to to buy some milk and you put on your protection jacket mm -hmm. if if done well this can really become part of our um, everyday wear if you are a paretic person then we can think about gloves uh, that can help you uh, maybe generate enough force to grasp a bottle after a stroke for example or after a, a spinal cord injury or, or they can help you be more independent in the way that you move your fingers which is also needed to generate certain motions so then we move beyond the cables that you firstly mentioned right where we were a few iterations uh... yes there's again this is an extremely multidisciplinary field uh, there's a lot of research that is going on at the level of digital twinning and ai and that's what we're doing but there's a lot of research that also is needed from a material science point of view. But super interesting. Yeah. I mean, my father is, uh, he's in his 70s and he has difficulties with keeping balance, so he falls yeah. uh, sometimes. I can imagine this suit or trousers or shoes or whatever form it will find its way in that could really benefit him in, in his daily life. That for, therefore, I want a dot on the horizon, Massimo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna let you what know. What date can I put in my agenda? <laughs> Let me think about it. I'm gonna maybe in five to ten years from now, this could be this could be a good uh, a good challenge for us to really build <clears throat> fully wearable devices that that are also small and uh, they can maybe be recharged also using some of the energy that we use for walking. There are already some ideas to basically harvest uh, the energy that we use to walk, to recharge yeah. the batteries of certain devices that we wear. But so there's a lot of research in this direction. Five years, Stephen, isn't that way too optimistic? Five to ten. I, I was quite surprised, actually, uh, in, in a good sense. Uh, we usually tend to think these, these kind of technological developments are, because we, we always talk about 20 years, 30 years, maybe in the future, and then something happens and it, it, it's not feasible. So five to ten, I think it's quite a happy message uh, as, as, as well. Something I was wondering, we are always talking, and in this case as well, about um, solving something that went broke or, or trying to fix something that went broke. There's, there's a lack of motion or a lack of limbs or, or some, some tree try to solve it. Can we also take it a few steps back in the process and especially, like you said, with elderly people as well or the case with your father, can we enter more the preventive care as well? Absolutely. Um, if we do manage collectively as a scientific community to build wearable sensors, uh, to develop new materials for smart and lightweight actuators, to develop uh, sensor-driven digital twins, then we can actually do a lot from a preventing point of view um, and potentially um, decrease the inflow in, in hospitals, which we know it's, it's high in Europe and in the, in, in the Western society in general. Before this all is reality, there are some serious hurdles on the road. Think of sustainability. These type of technologies, we might wear them on a 24-7 basis. That consumes a lot of energy. Set aside the resources to make them. Another hurdle is regulations. According to Massimo, this is a big constraint in adapting potential technologies to clinical practice. Technology developments are accelerating and um, at the moment, this has been dampened down by 
regulations. Uh, so that's really the bottleneck at the moment for translations of these potentially helpful technologies in, in everyday lives. I think that we need to work more and more on, um, again, connecting across different disciplines and across different sectors. So the health sectors and the engineering and the robotics. We need more communication, we need more discussion. Uh, we need to make the medical sector aware of the potentials of engineering and robotics and so that they can truly understand it. Uh, in my opinion, that's the first step. There's still a big divide, and this goes back to what we were discussing, I think, in episode one. Uh, you know, in the common rehab practice, there's, there's, there's not much technology yet. Um, and I think it, it has something to do with mentality. And perhaps changing this mentality will eventually also ease the bureaucratical burden or the regulative burden that eventually will uh, integrate this technology in, in, in our society or in our clinics. A new mindset is not a quick fix. What do you suggest is necessary? But, but this also requires, uh, in my opinion, training a completely new type of, of medical practitioners. We will need a new generation of practitioners who will be comfortable with technologies, who will understanding, and this starts from training, in my opinion. There is a lot to be done in the years to come, and not only in the field of AI. For the founders of the Mayo Challenge, it is amazing to see that there are more and more people engaged in this challenge. So is Vittorio Caggiano. Two years ago, he was one of the initiators of the Mayo Suite and the Mayo Challenge. With a background in AI, he closely watched what Chiappa and his team did, introducing the curriculum learning for the problem of muscle control. In their case, they didn't use something standard. They developed a new AI to solve the problem. And that was what made probably the biggest difference in achieving the best performance that they got. Caggiano is so passionate about bringing different perspectives at the table. He is eager for fresh new views to tackle these kinds of problems. My hope is that we, we have a possibility also to include more people that might be um, are, have uh, coming from uh, from places that might have solutions that are good, they manage to achieve good solutions, but for example, they are from high school or from bachelor degrees that are maybe younger in the in the in age respect to other participants, but they are able still to be competitive, that we can find a way to reward them as well. And this is usually has been one of the biggest like problem that we have had in AI in the recent days that there has been a huge bias towards big institutions, uh, big universities, and usually if you're, I mean, high school student that has some knowledge of AI, has very good skill, uh, cannot afford computing resources. So we have uh, generously from um, a Google Cloud uh, Compute, we have uh, credits that we offer for people so that they don't need to have infrastructure to train models. So we try to support that in a way that we want to try to uh, invite as many people as possible to participate is the enthusiasm they have to bring. Well, we've spoken with the winning team in the manipulation track. We've heard from the three Mayo Challenge and Mayo Suite founders that are not only working on research advances in the field of robotics and AI, but in the end, real-life applications. And they want to spread the energy, accelerate innovation. They want you to get just as enthusiastic about pushing the boundaries in neuromechanical musculoskeletal science as they are. 
Whatever background you have, wherever you live on this planet, we leave the last words for Vikash Kumar, who has a message for you. If you are listening and if you're interested, right now is the time to reach out. We have a very open group. Uh, we have people from more than 15 to 20 organizations working together. Um, we have a Slack channel that is open to everyone. We have the GitHub pages that is open to everyone. You don't have to wait for my challenge. If this field sounds interesting to you, just write back to me or the team. We always jump on a call. It's not a cold email you will get from us. We jump on a call, try to help you in any way possible. If you get stuck, you have only one choice to reach out, nothing else. Well, Stephen, that was a huge call for diversity from founder Vittorio. <laughs> that was clear indeed. And I think that's a good thing in general, because we need all the brain power, all the fresh new angles to overcome the challenges still ahead. And for maximum result, we need a diverse community, just as we organize in our robotics app. Yeah, well, what also resonated with me was that future Massimo envisioned. That shift from fixing healthcare issues to prevention. Those protective clothing he mentioned, for example, to keep us from falling and even having to use a walker when we grow old. Yeah, those applications and many more are a great step forward. But let's not forget that these developments take time. And to benefit from all that we discussed in the last four episodes, there's still a lot to be done. So we have to start now. Well, you've heard the man. Let's team up and just start. The future is now, so good luck if you are participating in Mayo Challenge 2024. And of course, enjoy. Bye. Bye-bye. This Mayo Challenge podcast is brought to you by the University of Twente's Robotics Center.